0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 1574. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, I have the best, nicest, smartest, brightest group of like-minded, friendly folks you can possibly imagine where we learn from each other, we get outraged with each other, we rejoice with each other. It's a wonderful community of folks, and you, as a loyal listener of The Tom Woods Show, belong inside it. It's called The Tom Woods Show Elite, and you can get in there via supportinglisteners.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. Glad to have Anthony Samaroff of the Scottish Liberty Podcast back on the program. I want to talk to him about his successful debate against Martin Ford, at the Soho Forum just a couple of weeks ago, they were discussing whether robots and automation were going to lead to widespread joblessness. And in the resolution, Anthony took the negative and prevailed by a substantial margin. So I wanted to talk to him about that debate, some of the points raised in it. I'm going to link to the debate itself so you can listen to it or watch it at TomWoods.com 1574.
1: And uh Anthony, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again. It's always a joy to join you on the Tom Woods Show.
0: Thank you very much for coming on on such short notice. But I just finished watching the debate you had at the Soho Forum. I just told the folks about it. And I was just thrilled to see you there. Uh, I mean, I wish I could have been there in person, but but just to...
1: I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken. I was was like, yeah, I won the debate by a wide margin of 20% or whatever. But, you know, Tom Woods wasn't there. And that just. (laughs) just, But honest to goodness, I so wanted to be
0: there. Yeah, no, I know you did. Is that I had made plans like months and months Mm. and months in advance. Same thing for the Scott Horton debate. Of course, it's absolutely killing me. But I'm going to be in your stupid country at that time instead of being in the correct country. And that's why I can't be with (laughs) Scott Horton. Yeah. So that's and naturally a, that's a
1: you arranged to be in Scotland in April to repay your debt of not coming to see me at the Soho farm. It's right exactly
0: when right. Scott's debate is, is when so, I'm, when so, I'm leaving it's in May, but yes, it's to, it's to pay you back for missing your debate. Well, you know, I know you've worked very hard on this. You've written about it. You've read about it. You've uh, spoken about it. So you definitely were the guy on our side to do this. And, and uh, it just, and, and, The fact that you're, you know, a frequent guest of the show here and you're a member of the supporting listeners group, it just filled my heart with pride Mm. to to hear you deliver that smashing opening statement. So, of course, the the way it goes is that the person arguing the affirmative goes first. So your opponent, Martin Ford, went first. Now, Ford has actually written several books that uh, touch on this general topic. So he isn't just some guy plucked out of nowhere. I mean, he's. He's Well, frankly, he's done more than you have on the subject, so he was a worthy opponent. And the way an Oxford-style debate works, of course, I think by now people know, the audience is polled before the debate takes place. They're polled about where they stand on the resolution, and then after the debate, they're polled again. And then the question is, who changes a greater percentage of minds? So the resolution was, robotics will soon lead to widespread joblessness, underemployment, and the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few – So before the debate, people who agreed with that statement, 16.96%. People who disagreed, 50% even, and undecided, 33.04%. After the debate, the yeses went up to 19.64% for a 2.68 percentage point change. But for no, it went from 50% to 69.64 for a 19.64 percentage point differential. And the undecideds were really where where most yeah. of this came from because they went down from 33.04 to 10.71. So that's a fairly decisive victory for you. Now first of all, what about before we get into some specifics about the points that he raised and how you answered them because I I took notes on this. What about the overall experience? I mean what what's it like? You even joked at one point. You said, you know, it's harder being up here than it looks, you know. Right. What, what what can you say about the overall experience?
1: Well, you know, I'm a little bit of uh Maybe I didn't get enough attention as a child or something like that, Tom. I like being up on stage a lot. I love giving presentations, but I don't think I've ever given a live debate before. I think I've only ever done it on a podcast. So that was something slightly different. I suppose the most surreal section was kind of the robot uh, my rebuttal, my robot. I'll, I didn't throw that joke in at the Soho Forum debate because I didn't want to lose votes for it. And um, I, I think because. Frankly, I said most of what I had to say in my opening statement and Martin didn't really come after my points aggressively. So I was kind of like trying to go through what he said in his rebuttal and pick out some things I could comment on. And I found a few things that I could comment on. In hindsight, you know, you always learn from every experience. I would have just gone back after the resolution again in my second section and and the questions because I felt like like a little bit surreal because you don't know how well or poorly you're doing like I thought I'd done well but you've got no idea what's going on in the heads of the people sitting in front of you so for that reason it was a little bit surreal like I was watching Martin Ford go up and listening to what he said but I felt like in a strange situation because usually you just go up and give a presentation and then someone else gives a presentation uh, and you just watch, whereas there was more of a back and forth in that respect.
0: I do want to actually review with you the main points you raised in your statement and talk about those, but but let's start with what he had to say and then uh, go from there. So the arguments he made were not unfamiliar. They I, I didn't think they were particularly novel. And I don't think he would even claim they were novel. I think he claims they're just unanswered. The arguments that are being made by people in his camp are being met by glib responses, if they're being met at all. They're being met by glib responses of, well, technology has always worked out in the past, so it'll probably keep working out in the future. Now, that's not a ridiculous argument. That's not Mm. absurd because even he admits that in the past, this hasn't come to pass and Mm. it has been a false alarm before. But, he really insists that this time it's different and so he tries to give evidence for why this time is different and in fact one of the things he says I, I think he either says this in the rebuttal or in the question period is that the most common reply is to give a particular example from history and that is the example of the massive shift away from agriculture into manufacturing where you had a, you had societies that were overwhelmingly agricultural And today we have societies where maybe 1% to 2% of the population is agriculture. That's a massive, massive shift. And yet the economy was able to accommodate that. And what he says is the difference there is that agriculture, what was happening in that situation was you had one specific technology in one sector of the economy. What you have here is a kind of technology that is going to permeate everything. There's no escaping it, it will be everywhere. And so the example from agriculture simply does not hold.
1: Is that persuasive to you? Well, I guess I dealt with that as there was a three-stage – there was three stages to my argument. The first was to go, look, there's no evidence that the job churn in the U.S. is faster than it has been in the past. In fact, here are some papers that came out from credible sources that say, if anything, it's a little bit slower in recent years. Secondly, even if as automation, this is the thing, because the the proponents of the AI doomsday, are, I don't want to straw man their position. But as you say, they're saying, well, we're just getting these glib responses like it always happened in the past. But it's or that, oh, just economists, they're just all about economic theory but here in the real world you know people are suffering right as as though you know what we're trying to do with economics theory is is not describe the real world so the, i said look if you look at the the effects of automation in the past they are to make goods and services cheaper and all throughout history they've only made people more wealthy so as this accelerates you know Everything halves in price, for example, a $10 wage is now a living wage. It's worth $20. Therefore, now you can, um, not only are living standards higher, but there's a bunch of stuff that we might want to do, like reduce classroom sizes or employ people ourselves to do things like take out the shopping or do the gardening for us, or but we can't afford it. Um, someone to take care of granny. Whereas in the economy of the future, as automation progresses, All of these things become more affordable to normal people. Yeah, I'm not just saying that creates more jobs. To return to your question, which I'm leading to is, even if it gets to the point where AI does everything, that's not going to impoverish people. On the contrary, that's like the Star Trek universe where you've got replicators. You know, you can order a Earl Grey tea because if this is a utility that is so widely available, as Martin says it is, it's a utility, it's going to be everywhere, then it's not scarce. And if it's not scarce, it can't be costly. So if it's not costly, everyone's got access to it, access to the replicators. The only reason why goods are expensive is because the rivalrous, you know, because human wants are infinite and resources are limited. So even so-called Martin Ford's worst case scenario is possibly the best case scenario where people, you know, there might be another host of problems where everyone's just a couch potato because they retreat into virtual reality world. But that is that, those are the problems that will face those people, which is a much uh, better problem than having, say, poverty.
0: Now, uh, Ford started off by saying that the types of jobs that are threatened – he says, first of all, it's not all jobs, and he says it's not even most jobs, but he claims that people who have looked into this have concluded that anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of jobs are at risk of being automated away. And what types of jobs are these? He says these are typically repetitive, manipulative jobs. These are the types of things that, that robots are just going to be better than we are at, and it's almost ridiculous for us to try to compete with them. He says huge numbers of jobs are already gone in manufacturing that we see it happening in China. And then he says Amazon, according to Jeff Bezos a few years ago, within 10 years will have, I forget if it was a hand or an arm that can match human dexterity. He says that that's going to be a complete game changer uh, because if this type of thing is everywhere, it would be one thing if it's happening in one sector. Then everybody leaves that sector, goes somewhere else. But the problem will be they have nowhere to go. So what, now, now you can come back with, but there'll be new jobs created. Mm. And maybe there will be, but f- that would sound like some kind of religious believer. Sure. Instead, whereas I'm lo- I'm looking at hard numbers here.
1: Right, okay. Well, I'm looking – but what this seems to discount is what is this robot hand going to be used to do? Are they just going to put it in a museum it's going to be used to meet people's needs right is the purpose of I mean sometimes when I was reading Martin Ford's book, I was like dude, you're like obsessed with jobs like do you think that it, it reminds me of the thing with the the Milton Friedman thing with the, digging a trench and saying why why don't they have the machines? well, this is a make work program well, why do you even give them shovels then the purpose of of a job is hopefully to do someone that meets someone else's desires needs preferences so that they can pay you money so that you can take that and pay someone else to meet your desires and preferences if you've got this robot hand it's obviously going to be employed to improve people's living standards now that's even so that's not going to be rolled out instantly there still needs to be a bunch of people to Program it for the individual uses, which whatever whatever it's being asked to do, whatever industry it's being employed in, um, people are going to have to figure out how to implement it there. Which means there is going to be a rollout period, which takes some time. It's not going to be an it's not likely to be an overnight thing. All
0: right, I have the. To my mind, the juiciest part, and I have weird tastes, so don't everybody get your hopes up that I've identified what you would find to be the juiciest part, but for, to my mind, this was, oh my gosh, I wanted to come through the, the, the device and go in a time machine and get back there and confront the guy on this point. So we'll get to that uh, just after this quick message. Well, folks, we've reached 2020, and no, we don't have flying cars or a lot of the things that we thought we might based on the science fiction we grew up with. But the truth is we're always gonna get the future wrong, which is why we need to get life insurance right. And that's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. And once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. And it's not just life insurance they make easy, they can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. I've used it myself. It is a pleasure and a breeze to use. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become science fact, Don't get discouraged. Get life insurance. It takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong. Better get life insurance right. All right, now for the juiciest part. It doesn't strictly have to do with robotics. It's maybe one level of argument removed, but it was the point about deflation. Now, Now, give me a chance to say a word about this because you pointed out that and in fact, this is what you've been saying here, that the one of the great benefits of this would be, and in fact, by the way, when Brian Kaplan was interviewed by Bob Murphy on The Bob Murphy Show recently, he compared the benefits to the economy of immigration to precisely the benefits to the economy of technology. Just, just think of it as another form of technology. And one of the benefits is that prices come down. Economy-wide, prices come down. And You kept making this point. And finally, Ford said that would be catastrophic for the economy if all prices came down. What? Why would it be? Well, of course, that is the mainstream view. So I I don't blame him as much as I would otherwise. But that is the mainstream view that, of course, if prices came down, that would be bad. But the reasoning he gave, I've never actually in my life come across somebody who believes this. I know that in theory somebody believes this. I never came across somebody who says, well, if prices consistently go down, he says, we won't buy anything. Nobody will buy anything because they anticipate the price will get even lower. So they'll keep waiting for it to get lower. I mean, that's just, so we're all just going to sit there and die waiting for prices to get lower. You'd have to be a lunatic. Uh, And so so Gene, as the moderator, just gently tried to remind him, but computers have come down in price consistently and we buy those, even though we know that next year's model is going to be better and cheaper. We still buy one, Because there's time preference. We need it right now. Yeah, 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 that's one sector, which is no answer to his argument. Mm. That's no answer to his argument at all to say that's just one sector. But I I just can't get over. So we're going to stand around naked because clothes will be cheaper in three months, and I won't get coffee in the morning because next month that cup of coffee is going to be two cents cheaper. So Mm. why would I buy coffee now? I can't get over that anybody would believe this. And not to mention that the U.S. became the great industrial power of the world – under a regime of falling prices, and that that was the norm in the u s. for well over a hundred years. And this was not any problem. He says that companies will get into debt because they won't anticipate what basically what he's saying is they won't anticipate that the price for their produced goods will have fallen. So by the time they bring the product to market, the price has fallen. They can't make a profit. They go bankrupt. But that's the job of the entrepreneur to anticipate where the price is going to be. That's what they're supposed to do. And if they go bankrupt, the worst that means is that the resources get shuffled around to new owners. There's no aggregate economic problem involved. So I, I just – like he could have been smashed over the head on that, just smacked on that, and and you were very charitable in not doing that.
1: Yeah, I I, I did – I just wanted to stick to the motion really because I could have maybe won more points by talking – when I say one more points, I mean – looking looking like I'm coming ahead as the more astute economic thinker, but I kind of wanted to stick to the topic at hand. But Gene Epstein, yeah, definitely almost took a canary and uh, lost his impartiality in moderating the debate because he really wanted to go after him. As it so happens, I'm going to have him on Scottish Liberty Podcast because he wants to skill me on what I did well and did badly because... Obviously, Jean had a lot to say on the issue, but I think it's quite weird. His main point was that we've got lots of debt and that if deflation happens and prices go down, people's debt compared to the standard of living goes up. Not to, He doesn't care to mention the fact that people have got so much debt due to the monetary policies we've been implementing, like printing money, which encourages people to take out debt because... They're not going to keep the value of their money and low interest rates, which does the same thing. So the the system encourages people to be irresponsible and punishes people for being irresponsible. Uh, The reverse would be true under deflation. It would encourage saving. So but it's like I don't think that the banks are going to go, well, you know, everyone, everyone that we've lent money to to buy a house is defaulting with their mortgage. So. We're just going to let that happen. We're just going to re- repossess all the houses and then auction them at a knockdown rate, which is going to be even less than the people living in them will pay for them. That's not how, going to happen. Even in this doomsday scenario of massive deflation, they're going to go back and renegotiate the contracts and go, well, you know, $200,000 is now worth what $400,000 would have been worth, which means you don't have to pay the outstanding $120,000 like we'll be happy with, sixty five thousand dollars because that's like that that has you know I don't think that they're gonna go through the the loss of the extra work that would have to go into repossessing like everyone's house and and then selling it off again how would you
0: describe the structure of your argument because here you are with 15 minutes to present in summary form the way you look at this issue and that's gonna do more than anything else frankly to define how the audience feels about your argument is how do they remember your initial presentation so what was the what was your line of attack and what would what were the maybe two or three things that you needed the audience to to understand and believe for you to win
1: well i went after the resolution and i looked at it really carefully automation and ai will soon and i really went after the word soon i was like is there really any evidence to believe that there's going to be a massive upheaval in the next 10 to 20 years and i think martin lost big time on that word but he approved that word and he agreed to the time frame that soon meant as 10 to 20 years then I just basically said, well, let's let's have a look at this. What is being claimed here? We're being asked to believe that it's first of all it's going to be soon. Second of all, it's going to create widespread joblessness. And third of all, that this is going to impoverish people, apart from the one percent. So I, I went directly to those three claims, and I I tried to demonstrate that the claims included in the Resolution were not justifiable at present, and you know someone like I think I was listening to Yang's some of Yang's talking points, and he he could have come after me saying something like, "Well, the people in the Rust Belt um, lost their jobs to automation, and they didn't find new jobs so easily," and and pressed me on something like that. But I didn't feel that Martin Ford came back as you said. Most of his arguments weren't novel, so. Because he didn't chase me down, I didn't feel like I had to add anything over and above taking down the constituent parts of the resolution.
0: But suppose he had come back at you with that. One thing he did come at you with was uh, labor force participation rates among prime working age men. And he says that in the 60s, it was 97 percent and today it's 89 percent. And he says that's a dangerous trend and – I guess the presumption is this must be because of automation, but I think he has to prove that. But um, what do you think about that particular point?
1: Well, I suppose you might have to bite the bullet and say, look, well, a lot of people, uh, of these people went on disability, for example, and not all of them are disabled. There's various factors in the economy, apart from automation, that make it difficult to take people on. The um, minimum wage have uh, labor laws, there's mandatory employee contributions to Medicaid, uh, sorry, to medical insurance, I should say. Uh, There's there's various factors in the economy that make it more expensive to employ someone. So if you want to employ someone for $24,000, it might end up costing you $32,000 or whatever it is. That makes it harder for the economy to absorb people into the workforce.
0: Well, now... On the workforce issue itself, you've said, and this is one of your main points, that automation is going to actually improve our lives. It's going to improve our standard of living. Uh, It's going to lead to an abundance of goods that we can scarcely imagine, and that's going to improve our lives. But if people are out of the workforce because of automation itself, and they don't have a job that brings them in even a few dollars, then how what are the nuts and bolts by which they benefit from the abundance if they have no income? I think that would be, he didn't quite put that, put it that way to you, but I was waiting for him to.
1: That would be the, that would be like the challenging question. You go, well, I mean, falling prices might go good for people who have a job, but what about people who have no job whatsoever? And that's what I think that's where he should have given me a good push because that would make it difficult for me. So far, What I think of things, and I mentioned, you know, they give away things like matchbooks and pens in restaurants and hotels. These things used to be expensive to produce, but now they're given away. Buying a garment used to be a -a once-in-a-lifetime affair. Now the charity shops can't actually get rid of the clothes that's given away to them. So... It only requires an extension of people's imagination to imagine that even in a society that was far more rich than affluent than ours is, what kind of things would become so abundant that they would just be given away? So if accommodation costs a quarter of what it does now because they can 3D print a house or an apartment block or something like that. There's so much more resources available to look after people that don't have a job and also attract those people into whatever work still can be done manually because those people aren't really going to need even a few dollars to live because the price of goods and services is so low. Could you expand on that or improve on what I've said?
0: Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, Bob has done it, but even Bob's answer, don't say anything. I'm not sure I'm completely hmm. convinced, but if, if I say it in this low voice, maybe he won't hear. So, um, right. I, I'd, have to, I'd have to wrestle with this a bit more uh, because, because in a way it kind of begs the question because it assumes right. that said, everybody – because your whole point is that they won't be technologically unemployed. Yeah. But yeah, their exactly. question says, well, when everybody's technologically unemployed, how are they going to. But that's your whole that's your whole argument.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's that's what I thought. It, it does involve that circular reasoning. It's like, well, what people about people who don't have a job? It's like, well, that's what you're trying to prove. And I have been wrestling with this question and continuing to refine my answer, which I still think can be improved more. Hence, you know, turning to you for your wisdom in this Interview because I still don't think I've been able to articulate the position as much as I'd like to, which is why I said to uh, a friend of mine going in, you know, I'm I'm willing to be convinced that I'm wrong, but I don't think judging by Martin Ford's book in which he only dedicated maybe two or three pages to this point, there's he should have done at least a chapter uh, replying to the idea that goods and services are going to fall in price like. At least, you know, that that that's that is the main argument against his position. I was like, I don't think that he's likely to be the one to convince me. So this is the crucial point. Like how do you articulate right, the right. idea? So there's one
0: way this one one way I might uh, approach it. And by and by the way, one other thing about his falling prices concern, because that he actually thinks that would be a bad thing if prices fell, I forgot to mention the converse of that argument would be that therefore we need high inflation. Because if prices are getting higher and higher all the time, people are going to spend like crazy. And so he thinks spending per se is the thing we need. If that were the case, we would want to be almost at the level of hyperinflation but just below so that we could just get people to disgorge themselves of their wealth in order to protect themselves. And I I don't – I just can't imagine that that could be a desirable situation, but that's the implication of his view. Now, I think back to something, and you may be familiar with this too, George Reisman said if you're ever worried about us, quote, running out of jobs. says, well, try to imagine if labor were super abundant, all the personal tasks you would want done. Maybe you'd want a driver, or you'd want a gardener, or you'd want uh, a butler, or you'd want somebody to massage you on a regular basis, whatever it is. Now, I suppose some of those things could be done by a robot, but, you know, I think being an old-fashioned sort, I have this funny feeling there are people who would place a premium on an actual person. They would. They would rather have an actual flesh and blood human being doing a lot of these things for them. So, so I mean, if, if automation became as widespread as they're claiming, it would be almost an interesting novelty to have mm-hmm. a human being around. You know that would satisfy a lot of people. And so if labor suddenly became that abundant because all the other tasks we needed done were already being done, then we would have all this leftover labor to do personal services. People say, oh my goodness, that mm. can't be your answer. Personal service, oh, that's not, but if the physical goods in the economy are so abundant at that point, then even the paltry salary I might earn as a personal servant would go so far, I'd, I'd be living like a king. Hmm. So there's, there's even that in the absolute last resort. If you can conceive of something to do with human labor, then you'll have the available you have the available labor to do it or again the other side of the coin would be would it be better if, I suppose we we landed on a planet where a lot of the services we needed were already were done automatically like transportation occurred just by thinking about it you just think about transporting a truck full of lemons from one place to another and it just went there would we say we better get back in our rocket ship and leave this terrible dystopia Or would we not say, oh, wow, okay, well, since that's done, I think we'll find something else to do. You know what I mean? I mean, like, I can't imagine thinking, getting to a place where a lot of things are basically done automatically and thinking, we need to go back to Earth where we need to roll up our sleeves and do the things.
1: Yeah, uh, very well put. And one of, that's one of the, devices I used to try and get the audience to picture it said well what would you do if your wage was worth twice as much who would you pay to do something because that's where the jobs are the question is what about when the androids look exactly like human beings
0: all right that's a possibility we could get to that point that is true and and I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here because I mean I don't Always have every answer to everything. That's why. Why do you think I have guests? You know, it's so I can say, well, the guest didn't come up with any good answer, and it, you know, kind <laughs> of gets me off the hook. Hey, hey. But I, I don't have the answer to absolutely everything. I, th- I guess the question becomes: Are they? They being people opposed to you on this, are they proposing that we are going to get to a point with AI? Not, not to mention the robotics involved, but, but we're going to get to a point with AI where they would absolutely they would. C- be able to simulate completely human responses, feelings, emotions, uh, spontaneity, human idea generation, that they can actually... Not that I I can run a robot through a million games of chess and he can figure out the rules, but that he can spontaneously develop new ideas, which is a whole separate Mm. thing. Are they proposing that that's going to happen? Because I'm curious about that, first of all, because I actually don't even know what the claim is.
1: Sure, and I I guess... Their idea is given an infinite amount of time, it's bound to happen sooner or later. So it might not happen in a hundred years, but what about 200 years? But what about a thousand years? Is it, are they not bound to eventually refine it? Now, I personally don't know if that's possible or not. And um, like you, I have some skepticism about it. But then during the debate, I could always hide behind the fact that the resolution says soon. And I didn't really need to answer. 100 200 years into the future.
0: So let's say we do get to that point. I mean are, are we at a point where it it then becomes at that point a little bit tricky to figure out how this all ends up?
1: Well the thing is at that point you don't really know if you're in a simulation or not.
0: Oh this is getting beyond my mental abilities.
1: I know it freaks me out as well like if you can't <laughs> tell if you can't tell the difference between a person and a robot like How do you even know if that hasn't happened already? How do you even know if you're not in a virtuality world? I mean, someone put forward this thought experiment, which is quite clever, that said, if people are ever capable of doing this, then it's bound to happen eventually. Not only that, but the number of simulations will outnumber the number of real universes. So chances are you're in a simulation, not a real universe.
0: All right, well, look, all I can say is I don't care what the future holds. I will always hold a special place in my heart for Anthony Samuroff that droid Samuroff will never be able Mm -hmm. to occupy. I'm just, I assure you of that.
1: Oh, well, you say that now, Tom, but, you know, (laughs) when you meet that droid Samuroff, I just know, I just (laughs) know that I won't be able to compete.
0: Yeah, I'll say, Mm -hmm. geez, I didn't notice all of Anthony's annoying qualities until this (laughs) Annoying quality free droid appeared. All right. Well, let's uh, ha- take a minute for you to tell folks again about a, a a book that we've talked about on the show, but they may not remember or not have heard about uh, your book on universal basic income, because it is related to this topic.
1: Yeah, great. Please pick up a copy of Universal Basic Income for and against from Amazon. It covers a whole bunch of arguments in favour of the universal basic income that you may not have heard before, before smashing that. But the main thing I like about it is it's also a libertarian manifesto on how to reduce poverty. And I think if we're going to go be on the echo chamber, it's sometimes fun being in the echo chamber, you always learn new things. But if we're going to speak to people who aren't already qualified And the things that we take for granted, we need to talk about the kind of issues that they find interesting and important at the moment. And I think poverty being one of them. So it's a great way to show that less is more when it comes to government solving poverty. Actually, it's got a whole bunch of policies and things like that that implemented would radically reduce the cost of living. And that would benefit everyone. I should also point out that the reason why I got invited to the Soho Forum debate is because Gene Epstein hired me on your show, read my book, and was very impressed by the section in the book on automation. And that's why he asked me to debate it at the Soho Forum. So it would definitely be a worthy addition to your libertarian library.
0: I'm going to link to it as I normally do at tomwoods.com slash 1574. So you can indeed pick up a copy, and you will no doubt enjoy it. Well, Anthony, I am looking forward to making this up to you by visiting you in your home country in May. Uh, while you know, now it would make perfect sense for you to be in the U.S. at that time, going to see Scott Horton. I hope that's not going to happen, <laughs> but okay. but it, it will be fun to see you. And thanks for being on this morning.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to speaking to you again.
0: All right, everybody, that's it for today. Now tomorrow we've got. Professor Frank Buckley, F.H. Buckley, from George Mason University's Law School, on to talk about his new book, American Secession. And man, this is a good one. So definitely tune in for that. Make sure you subscribe to the program over at TomWoods.com Apple. And I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free. And we'll see you next time.